Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. For a child, Advent is a long but exciting season. It adds newness to life's routines as decorations transform the house. Christmas music is enjoyed. Holiday crafts and treats abound. There's anticipation in the air, and yet Christmas is still far away. But as the years go by, familiarity sets in. Responsibility increases, and... In our experience, the season of Advent feels shorter and busier than ever. But let us not forget to take time to pause and wonder anew over things that ought to be familiar, but no less amazing. Try to imagine for a moment, what if you had no prior knowledge of the Bible? And you picked up a copy of the New Testament and started reading from the beginning. You might be surprised that it starts with a long list of names. Not the most exciting way to begin a story. You know, we we want to start with action. We want to know what Jesus did. And even more, we want to know what he can do for us. But that's not where Matthew begins. Matthew starts with an explanation of who Jesus is. That's the purpose of this long genealogy. It's about identity. He is Jesus, who is called Christ. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. But if you've never read the Bible, then you've got to wonder, who are these people? But Matthew doesn't get into that. He assumes familiarity with these names because the story doesn't begin here. The story of Jesus is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. What Matthew's doing here is making a claim at the beginning of the book. Jesus is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of of the Old Testament promises made to people such as Abraham and David. The list of names summarize the story of the Old Testament and prepare the way for a new age in Jesus Christ, a new beginning, indicated by the very first words in verse 1, which in the Greek are Biblos Geneseos, book of Genesis. The story of Jesus' coming is a new book of Genesis. Not about the birth of the world, but the birth of the world's Savior, Jesus. His name was a common one among Jews in that day. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. It means Yahweh saves. The name teaches that salvation is from the Lord. 
The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. It's a title, not a name. And the title is a reference to the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. Each of these offices were indicated by the anointing of oil. Now, it's not as if the oil had magical properties in it to give someone special power from God. Rather, it was a physical symbol of a spiritual reality believed to have taken place. That is to say, it represents the Holy Spirit giving wisdom and power to a person set aside for the office. And throughout the Old Testament, a lot of people held these offices. Some of them were bad. There were false prophets who deceived the people and led kings astray when they told them what they wanted to hear. There were self-absorbed priests who were hungry for power, who served themselves instead of the Lord. And there were wicked kings who led the people of God into idolatry. But there were also faithful people in these roles. Some are more famous than others, but none of them were perfect. The best of them pointed to someone else, someone who is yet to come. One day the Lord would send forth his servant who would be a prophet like Moses a priest like Melchizedek, and a king like David. Matthew's claim in the very first sentence of his book is that Jesus is this prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the Christ, the Lord's anointed deliverer promised in the Old Testament. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And the aim of this extended genealogy is to establish the legality of the claim that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And that's important because of the promises God made to them. The Lord said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne forever. Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the son of David, who will be king forever. This is a theme developed throughout the gospel. Furthermore, God promised Abraham that he would be made into a great nation, and that through his seed, all the families of the earth, Jew and Gentile, will be blessed. Therefore, Jesus, the son of Abraham, is the hope of the nations. He brings blessing to Jew and Gentile alike. These promises awaited their fulfillment through the story of the Old Testament. It's a long story, and Matthew has condensed it into a list of names, carefully divided into three groups of 14, describing three periods of biblical history. This is not an exhaustive list, but a selective list of names. Matthew's purpose in these equal divisions is to show the hand of God in history and indicate that the time of preparation is complete and the stage is set for the time of fulfillment. The first section of names span from Abraham to David and his son Solomon. 
This part of the biblical story highlights the grace and mercy of God in choosing Abraham for his own and building him into a great nation with a king. The trajectory of this part of the story is upward. It began with one man who was called to leave his home, Abraham. And it ended with a great number of people living in a land of their own, the nation of Israel, which was united under the rule of King David and built up and made prosperous with King Solomon. The temple was built to worship the Lord and the nations came and marveled. But if you zoom in on the details of the story, it was messy. Abraham doubted the promise of God to bring him children, and so he took matters in his own hand and produced an illegitimate heir. Jacob is mentioned in the genealogy, but not Esau, who despised his birthright. Judah and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And the people of God repeatedly fell into idolatry during the time of the judges. The messy details of the biblical story are further revealed by Matthew's inclusion of women. It's unusual to include women in a genealogy because descent was not traced in the female line. And you might be tempted to think that Matthew was ahead of his time and wanted to uplift women. But if that was his intention, he could have mentioned Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But instead, he went with four women who were foreign and a bit scandalous. Women who highlight God's mercy and forgiveness. Tamar, the first of these women, was probably Canaanite. And she dressed like a prostitute to trick Judah, her father-in-law, into producing an heir with her. Now, to be fair to Tamar, her scandalous action was really an indictment on Judah. And Judah recognized that she was more virtuous than he, but still, she's not a perfect role model. And then there was Rahab, a Canaanite woman from Jericho. She didn't just play the part of a prostitute. She was one. And yet, despite her past, by faith, she helped the Israelites conquer her city. And she was grafted into the family of God. Ruth is the least scandalous of these women, although she was a bit forward with her intentions regarding Boaz, secretly uncovering and laying at his feet during the night. But she was faithful to Naomi and the Lord. What makes her scandalous is that she was a Moabite woman, a people cursed, having descended from incestuous Lot. And then there was Bathsheba, and she's not even named by Matthew. Rather, she's referred to as the wife of Uriah. Matthew is drawing attention to the fact that David committed adultery. And yet this scandal was part of God's providence, and Bathsheba who was married to a Hittite, became a member of God's family. Now, this period of time from Abraham to Solomon was full of deeply flawed individuals, and yet the overall trajectory was upward. God was establishing his people, slowly but surely, one flawed person at a time, fulfilling his promise of building Abraham into a powerful nation. 
But this messy history gives us the assurance that God is at work for the good of his people, even when it seems like we're taking a step or two backwards with every step forward. Progress is slow. Sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing, but he's always at work bringing things out for the good of his people. And he's merciful using people who are far from perfect. And he's gracious, grafting those outside his people into the family of God. Well, the second group of 14 describes a period of dissent and judgment. A few names are omitted from this part of the genealogy and a few names are even changed. King Asa is changed into the psalmist Asaph, and King Ammon to the prophet Amos, a nod to the fact that the psalmists throughout this period were the singers of God's praise and the prophets were the proclaimers of God's word and judgment. But the people didn't listen. Now, there were a few moments of good. Hezekiah instituted some wonderful reforms and restored the temple. But then his son Manasseh, who's included in the genealogy, he was among the most wicked kings. He was vile. He sacrificed his own children. He turned the hearts of Israel to idolatry. The second group of names tells the story of Israel's fall from the height of political and spiritual glory down into the pits of exile. The nation of Israel lost her land, temple, king, and so it seemed the promises of God. But the story doesn't end in exile. God did not abandon his promises. The times of darkness cause us to question the goodness of God. But with faith, we can trust that God is at work, even if we don't understand his plan. He's always at work for the good of his people. Now, the third group of names highlight hope. The lineage was not snuffed out with the exile. The line of David was still intact, and it led to a man named Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, Joseph is not said to have fathered Jesus, but by Palestinian law, the head of the family was no less the father of his adopted children than of those children he had naturally. And so because Joseph is a descendant of David, and the adoptive father of Jesus, Jesus is therefore a legitimate son of David. The purpose of the genealogy is accomplished at this point, and yet Matthew includes a fifth woman, Mary. And her inclusion is important. First, because she fulfills the promise of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this will be explicitly shown to be the case throughout the rest of Matthew chapter 1, although it's hinted here in the fact that 
Joseph is not said to have fathered Jesus as every other male in the genealogy is said to have fathered someone. But perhaps even more importantly, the inclusion of Mary points to the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first pronouncement of the gospel. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned and brought death into the world, the Lord promised redemption. He said to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The snake crusher, the Lord's anointed, would be born of woman. A human would lead to the downfall of the serpent. Although Jesus is fully God and has fully existed, it was necessary for him to take on flesh and be born of a woman. It was necessary for him to be fully human, to become a part of the biblical story, to be a legitimate son of David and Abraham. That's the purpose of this genealogy, to show that Jesus was human and the divine fulfillment of God's promises. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Thanks be to God. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 